fundraisers like you are working to supply your cause with the resources it needs to make the world a better place. But donor expectations and technology seems to keep changing. At Pursuant, we want to bring you conversations that put leaders like you at the top of your fundraising game. Welcome to the Go Beyond Fundraising Podcast. If you haven't listened to part one of this conversation with Maureen Walbioff, I encourage you to hit pause, check it out, and then return for the second installment of the discussion. In this episode, Maureen and I discuss the new challenges facing nonprofits as they operate and budget amidst post-pandemic expectations. So Maureen, in the first half of our conversation, we looked at how the pandemic has accelerated this digital transformation in the for-profit, nonprofit, just kind of globally, this digital transformation. And we looked at how that has affected the donor and constituent experience and kind of the pieces of technology that are needed to support that. Now we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how the pandemic has accelerated how nonprofits actually operate. And we recognize that depending on the sector, your nonprofit could have been really affected by the pandemic, or perhaps it was not so much affected by the pandemic. You know, you've got healthcare and hospitals that are kind of still dealing with the the effects of that. You get higher education that took, you know, three, four, five semesters off and their students went from an on-campus experience to a virtual experience. There's religious organizations that had to just become these content generating machines. And then you've got your mission-driven nonprofits like food banks, animal welfare, rescue missions, and shelters. And so based on your experience working with different clients, you know, how did you see people that you work with shifting how they operated as a nonprofit as the pandemic began and how it's continued? Yeah, well, I think no matter what, we'll talk about each of those sort of industry subgroups in a sec. But if we remember, remember March, remember March of 2020, I got off a plane in Providence, Rhode Island on the 10th of March and did not fly again for a very long time. And I have worked remotely for 15, 16 years now. So this was a good equalizer for me. <laughs> I've been used to, you know, managing with my voice and, and holding Zoom meetings and doing a lot of things remotely for years. So for me, it was just kind of same day, same stuff. But everybody else who either was never allowed to work remotely, the expectation was if you were working, you were going to be in the office. Your boss didn't think you were working unless you were sitting in the same building. Everybody kind of grabbed some stuff and ran home. And what I found was that even in large hospitals, higher ed, they are so used to working in a physical location a lot of the time that they did not have stuff at home that would allow them to actually work in a similar productive way as they did when they were sitting at whatever Main Street office building, brick and mortar. People didn't have fast internet. And even if they did, their kids were using it for remote learning. And parents were home with their kids trying to manage remote learning. So the first, you know, six to nine months of everybody going home and trying to figure out how to do this stuff from home 
was just not a well-planned experiment. (laughs) And I think people either decided that they really liked it and they figured out their own systems and, you know, what they needed to have at home to be able to do a good job at their job. And other people just felt like the only way I can manage others is by being in an office with them. The only way we can plan is if we are together. And for folks who live in a very small space, you might not have the ability to do quiet work in your house. So going to work was really essential. Um, over the last you know year and a half that we've been, been in this stuff, people have gotten a little bit more comfy. I think the latest spikes that we experienced in cases around the United States at the end of the year made everybody feel like we were never going back. I'm speaking with lots of nonprofit leaders who are trying to figure out what they should provide, what the employee should provide. Do I pay for internet? Do I pay for cell phones? Because this far into it now, we all feel like we have to be ready. Even if you know working from the office is cool and everybody wants to do it, there are likely going to be times where your team will be distributed. So how do we live in a hybrid world and how do we learn how to work together when I don't know whether this person's going to attend the meeting sitting next to me or on a screen? Definitely. Well, and bringing this into the scope of fundraising, it also creates an interesting narrative that we have to communicate with our donors. I'm remembering there's been some documentaries lately that have come out and I won't name them, but you know, criticizing nonprofits that have a certain budget set aside mm-hmm. for their operations, mm-hmm. um, saying, you know, why are you paying people this much? Like my donation should be going 100% to the mission. And I think that communicating that narrative to donors can be a tricky one of like, the way that we operate as a nonprofit has changed, just like your life has changed. And in order for us to continue to deliver on our mission, we're going to need to reinvest some of those dollars into the organization just to make sure that we can function efficiently as an organization and people can have what they need to be successful. But it's tricky to communicate that with people. It is. And I think you and I are thinking about the same documentaries. And I bet we even saw the same LinkedIn posts over the past couple of months where there was There's a lot of conversation in our industry about operational expenses and is less, is is the lowest you can possibly get that number down? Is that actually serving your mission? I always counsel folks who have problems with explaining investment in their people, investment in their ability to work in 2022. If it's your board, let's say this is a scenario I hear a lot. My board, I'm prepping my budget for fiscal year 2023, and my technology budget doubled from last year. And the board is going to ask a lot of questions. How do I position this? And a, a really good thing to do is to ask that board member to find out how much their day job spends on technology. You know, what percentage of your overall profits or revenue does that board member's company spend on technology? I think it needs to level the playing field between what a business is okay spending and is expected to spend 
on infrastructure versus, you know, Dixie cups and a string are not going to make it in 2023 and 2022. So we have to invest. And you alluded a minute ago to staffing and things like that. We can talk about that in a minute. But you you are going to keep people when you give them the tools that they need to do a good job at their job. You can't expect someone who is a single mom or in school or does not have the resources to buy a webcam. It's a diversity and inclusion issue uh, from an employer perspective. That's how I think about it. Does this sound familiar? You're spending a lot of time, money, and brain power on your nonprofit systems. Things like CRM or database, online donation system, email marketing tool, event registration platform, peer-to-peer fundraising system, but just bringing technology into our organizations isn't enough. At some point, most of us have asked the question, what's the return on investment for all of this stuff? Using these tools effectively takes planning. If you're looking at your technology budget and wondering whether you're getting your money's worth, Maureen Walbioff's new ebook is just for you. Visit meetmaureen.com forward slash nonprofit dash tech dash investment dash ebook to grab your copy today. We'll also include this link in the show notes. Earlier, we alluded to some of the unique technological demands on nonprofits kind of based on what uh, vertical they were in. So Mm -hmm. let's just pick one and begin with it or pick one and kind of go down the road of, of discussing it. Let's look at higher education. Something that I think a lot of institutions, colleges, universities are grappling with is they got a taste of what it was like to be a fully online university. And they started to ask questions about not only what technology do we need to make sure our students and our professors have to be able to deliver really you know, quality education, but how much of the education that we've been pitching to our, our admissions folks is actually based on the on-campus experience? And what does that look like when being on campus might look different? Yeah. And, and my experience in the, the higher ed arena is that they have been selling the on-campus experience. The education, you want that to be quality, right? You want to have good instructors teaching your kids or yourself, but it's about, for many of us, it's about the my time as a young person becoming independent and being in a place that is somewhere I actually want to be and often may settle right? So it's not just about selling the campus. It's about selling the community. If high quality education services can be delivered from anywhere, how does a a higher ed institution tell their story? I'm curious what you'd say to that, Leah, as a marketing pro, how should they pivot? Yeah. I mean, on, on the one hand, you could have them double down on it. I mean, I had a very, I had a wonderful uh, higher ed experience, but that was partially based on the fact that the university that I went to 
it played up its study abroad programs as um, one of the, the main selling points for students coming. Um, and they've been able to, I think the spring semester has been the first one they've been, they've actually been able to bring students back to, but I mean, borders are not fully open the way that they were before and people still can't move around abroad the way that they used to. So, you know, that's going to look different. And then there's also the element of, you know, setting those kinds of experiences aside of higher ed institutions, I think have been selling themselves as kind of finishing schools. So it's not just a place where you're going to be getting this high, this really high quality education with some of the leading professors and researchers in the world, but you're going to be able to live in community with other people who are going to challenge you, give you networking opportunities, you know, give you social skills that you Mm -hmm. can take with you into the business place. And I think that it's really difficult to replicate that in a, in a digital at-home environment. And then I think it's something that that's one, been one of their main selling points. They have to figure out a way to, to double down on that responsibly. Yeah, it's about the digital education experience is great for convenience, but that's about it. So, you know, how could you put together a virtual study abroad program, you know, that's going to take a couple of years to work out and figure out. And will anybody even want that? Because it's just, it's so different from what your study abroad experience sounds like it was. Definitely. Well, so let's also look at some of these mission-driven nonprofits. So one of my favorite stories coming out of the pandemic was something that animal welfare organizations learned was that they were actually playing a dual role, not just as an organization that delivered services to animals that needed them, but also they found that people who were suddenly living home isolated in the pandemic needed companionship as well. And so they actually found that they were delivering services to humans, not just to animals. So all of a sudden they had a whole new understanding of what their narrative was as a nonprofit. So Maureen, I know that you've got a hard stop. So we're just going to go right into our final question to wrap up today. Um, it's been a really interesting conversation and I've, I've, I've enjoyed some of the avenues that we've explored, but I'd love to kind of stare at the this future of work. Nonprofit organizations like for-profit organizations are thinking about labor right now. Um, labor costs are going up with inflation because it just costs more to live right now. But also the distribution of talent has changed as people have realized that they can work from anywhere. And so for nonprofit organizations, that opens up both some challenges and also some opportunities. And I think it would be a really interesting place to end as we end our time today. Sure. Yes. I think remote work is here to stay, even if it's in a hybrid state. I think that um, I just read recently a statistic that said 29% of nonprofit organizations across the United States have two or more critical job openings. We're going to be living with that for a little while. And the best way to address that is to broaden your search. Does it really matter if someone is coming into the office a couple of times a month or not? Um, You can learn how to interview, hire, train, and manage people without needing to be sitting in the same room with them. So I would encourage nonprofit leaders or supervisors, HR folks to learn 
more about how to manage a remote employee, how to build a team, tight trusting team with good communication and mutual respect and appreciation. It's very possible to do that remotely. You just haven't had to do it yet. So I would invest some time in figuring out how you're going to do that and start to cast your net more widely than maybe you felt like you needed to in the past. Yes. And it also opens you up to potentially a better pool because if you can have the best person possible who works in who works in accounting but they happen to live in, you know, in a remote town in Iowa work for you, you might not have ever been exposed to that person if you were only looking within 50 miles of your office of your nonprofit's headquarters. Yeah. And to bring it back to sort of operational systems, that might require that you've got to go cloud-based with some things that you've always had based in a physical space. So if your database is self-hosted in a server room in your office, maybe it's time to investigate going to the cloud for things like that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I feel like there are so many ways we could take this conversation, but I think we've had a really interesting talk today. And I know there's probably a lot of things that listeners today are jotting down and wishing that they could ask you. You do have a book that you've released recently. And I want to make sure that we take some time to acknowledge that and let and let people go and grab it if they're interested. Oh, Leah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, called Getting a Return on Your Nonprofit Technology Investment. The Accidental Techies Guide. And it really has plain, free advice and worksheets for people to just dive in, regardless of you know where they're at in the accidental techie continuum, and really start to make some positive changes in getting stuff organized and used effectively and getting some return on that money you're spending on all that stuff. I love it. And they can get that at your website, which is marinewalbioff.com. It's meetmaureen.com. Excellent. We will make sure and have the link in the show notes for both part one and part two of this episode. And thanks again for joining us today and just sharing some of your wisdom with our audience. This was the best point of my day, Leah. Thanks for sharing your time with me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, We invite you to leave a rating and review as that helps others discover the show. 